Hello, hello everybody. I'm Lucy Neve. I'm from the School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics. And today I'm going to talk to Professor Alison Booth. We're going to run this as an interview. Alison's going to talk a bit about her paper that you've received um, that's, you know, around the room. And I'll pro we'll probably talk to each other for about 40, 45 minutes and leave some time for questions at the end. Or you can also ask questions during our conversation if anything occurs to you while we're talking that you think's relevant or that I, you think that I've left out, then by all means ask, ask us in the process of the conversation. So to introduce Alison, can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. good. So to introduce Alison Booth, she's Professor of Economics here at the Australian National University, but she's also a research fellow of the Centre for Economic Policy Research in London and the IZA in Bonn and the Institute for Employment Research in Nuremberg. She's an ANU Public Policy Fellow and a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. She received an Economic Society of Australia's Distinguished Fellow Award in 2017. She works on labour market and behavioural economics topics. Her book, The Economics of the Trade Union, Cambridge University Press, was a Princeton University Economics Book of the Year in 1996. And she's also the recipient of a number of major grants across in Australia and also in the UK. But besides that, Alison's a novelist. She's published four novels, three as part of what, what are called the Ginger Trilogy, which is set on the south coast of New South Wales and really evoke the place. There's Stillwater Creek, Indigo Sky, and A Distant Land. And most recently, she's published a book called A Perfect Marriage with Red Door Publishing in the UK. So the incredible thing about Alison is that she can speak about economics writing and the process of writing economics papers, but she can also speak about writing fiction. So the interview, we'll talk a lot about the economics, her economics papers, but we'll also talk you know, as we go on more and more about her process, the process that she engages in when writing fiction. And she may be able to draw out for us some of the differences between the two areas of writing that she, she's engaged in. So to start, Alison, I'd just like to ask you about the background for your paper, Gender Differences in Risk Behaviour, Does Nurture Matter? If you can tell us about what led to that paper and what existing research was out there from which you kind of made an advance in this particular paper? Sure. Um, this paper, like a lot of my research, proceeded by accident. Um, and what happened was that I got very irritated with what was happening in the labour economics literature, which, with, which had to do with gender pay gaps. And people were saying, okay, maybe gender pay gaps are there because women are inherently less risk uh, loving, less risk averse, more risk averse should I say, than men and they're less competitive and for this reason they get paid less and some of the sort of implications of that argument were that this is a situation that we can do nothing about because it's innate now, I happen to have gone to an all-girls school, and I'm the daughter of, my mother was a chemist, and I thought that this was something that we needed to do a bit of testing on. And um, for about a decade, I was working at the um, University of Essex as well as here, 
And there, we hired a new colleague at the University of Essex who was a recent graduate from Cornell. And he had been trained in uh, labor economics, development economics, and crucially for my purposes, experimental economics. And I had never worked on experimental economics before I met him. And wow, what an opportunity. I was blown away by his first talk, which was looking at um, the performance of black and white kids in South African schools when they were primed with their ethnicity. And that had a profound effect on the performance, particularly of the black girls. So I thought that was, um, it would be a great collaboration. So I persuaded him to work with me. And the nice thing about the county of Essex is that it still has, and had when we began, publicly funded single sex schools, grammar schools. These survived. And the adjacent county, which was Suffolk, didn't. Um, they had only, only um, publicly funded co-educational schools. Essex had a mix of both. So we thought what a terrific experiment this would be to take kids from, of the same age, same sort of general background, from these, um, some of these single sex schools and some of the co-ed schools and bus them to the University of Essex um, and set up an experiment where we would have them doing um, fairly well tried games designed to elicit people's risk aversion and their willingness to compete, amongst other things. But we, we knew, of course, that there would be problems, potential problems of selection, because the parents who send their sons and daughters to um, single-sex grammar schools are probably like to be, likely to be selected. They might be very pushy, the parents, they might be um, uh, more affluent, although of course we could control for that. Um, and so we were aware of the fact that we would have selection issues. So what we did as well on the day of the experiment, we uh, quasi-randomly, I say quasi-randomly because it was a random assignment, but we made sure we had in each group of four um, on the day of the experiment, we had one kid from each of the schools so they wouldn't know one another. And we had eight different schools, counting all the co-ed schools. <clears throat> and so then we wanted to see what would happen. And we found out that um, the girls who'd been to the, who were being educated at the single-sex schools behaved exactly as the boys in the, um, in the experiments designed to show their risk taking and their willingness to compete. So in other words, there was no difference between girls and boys from girls who'd been in that single sex education environment. Now these kids were aged 14 to 15. That's a crucial stage of adolescence when you're really concerned, especially if you're female, with being, well, men too, of course, um, with being attractive to members of the opposite sex. But the identity for women differs from the identity for men, for you know, adolescence, that being female is often associated with being ultra-feminine. Now that's a battle, that's a battle that um, girls, adolescent girls are facing. Um, you know, pulled in two different directions. They might be really bright, high achievers, but they've got to stick to this um, social identity. Mm -hmm. 
So um, that was what we were finding. And we also found that the girls and boys who were assigned to the single sex groups for the day of the experiment, that there was an effect there as well, that the girls were less, um, you know, girly, so to speak, um, and were behaving more like the boys. And that was a genuine random assignment. So that was what we found with the experiment. Thank you. So could you talk a bit about what the flow and effects or the sort of the, the response was to the in the literature as a result of your paper and what whether this idea was taken up and how? Well, single sex education, anything to do with single sex education is hugely controversial. Particularly so in the US. Um, so after we got up, we had a little bit of a battle getting the paper um, accepted. Um, we did two experiments, actually two papers, this one and another companion one, which was a competitive behavior. Um, so it took a little while to get this one accepted. Um, and the main criticism was the selectivity criticism. So what we then decided to do was, hey, let's come up with a situation where we can randomly assign kids into, young people I should say, into single sex or co-ed environments and see how they go. So we persuaded the ethics um, uh, committee at the University of Essex and the timetabling officer to allow us to randomly assign incoming first year students doing introduction to economics into either single sex or co-ed tutorial classes. And those classes represented just 8.3% of their um, tuition for the first year. So it's a, a, a fairly small treatment, but we wanted to see what would happen. Um, and then we followed them with, what we did, what we did was we did the same sort of risk experiment, looking at the willingness to take risks, only more sophisticated one this time. And we also did competition. Um, and we found, um, and that was done, we did that initially in the first week of term, then the eighth week of term. And we found that the girls in the single sex classes were, after eight weeks, behaving much like the boys in the single sex and the co ed classes. Whereas the girls in the co ed classes were not. There was a statistically significant difference in behavior. So that was a pretty um, powerful effect, we thought. Yes. And then because we had these kids all the way through their university degree, we were able to follow them each year and get their exam results. Um, and we did the usual, um, anyway, I won't go into the details, but um, I found it very exciting. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, and we've only just had this accepted for publication in a US journal, a good one, um, we found that the girls who had had that treatment in their first year were getting, were one degree classification higher than the girls who hadn't. Now that's quite a big effect, although you have to remember that in the British system, you know, they don't give out marks the way they do here. So it was either a first class degree, two one, two two, third class, unclassified or fail. 
So the girls who'd been through this treatment were on average 2 1 degree, and the girls who hadn't were on average 2 2 degree. So something had happened with that treatment. And unfortunately, we weren't able to tease out the mechanism, although we were able to ask kids, girls, young people, I should say, what they felt, and that the you know, various things came up, like study groups, this sort of thing, friendships, and so on, that um, set them on their way. So that's... Thank you for telling us about the results of the paper. So I'd, I'd just like to ask you now a bit about the writing of this particular paper. Could you talk a bit about how the paper was written and how much writing you do prior to the first draft of the paper? What's the process in the lead up? I mean, obviously you've, you've, um, you've got some results, um, you've, you've formulated the experiment, it's gone through an ethics committee which involves some writing itself, but could you just talk about the, the lead up to the writing of the paper? And the um, role of writing in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, with the what I learned with the experimental work was that it was necessary to work out all the hypotheses. Actually, I'm going to say conjectures from now on because I have a lot of trouble saying the word hypotheses. Um, so, but we had to work out all the conjectures beforehand. Um, we had to know what we were doing because um, it costs money to run an experiment, and you can't afford to run it twice. So we did a lot of thought, and I think this is where the creative element was coming through in working out what, up, up front, ex ante, what we were wanting to do and what possible problems could come along and whether, you know, if there were some problems, whether we could salvage the problem by looking at some other conjectures. Um, so in, in earlier conversations between us, you also mentioned the role of email and email exchanges with your collaborators as a form of writing that you engaged in, in order to think through some of the questions that you were posing in the... Yeah, yeah, that was actually in another paper. That was in another paper. Because Patrick and I were... Um, you were in the same... The in same the same department at that stage, although when I came back here, it was a long way away. But the one where that email really mattered is the ones with, um, I'm working currently with a co-author in uh, Seoul yes, and another one in Japan and the one with the co-author in Japan is um, very interesting because he's very smart and he has access to a fantastic data set in which there's a random assignment, so important the random assignment, um, but his English is appalling. Um, so it's, it's like translating um, and in a way that's an extra veil of difficulty because when we write to and fro, I have to, I I, no, no Japanese, and I have to translate that into what I can comprehend and then in writing the paper I have to transform that into my sort of English. Um, so that, that's a battle, but the question that you're asking, I think, really applies to the Korean co-author. Yes. And that, um, and he's got data from a game show on the Korean educational uh, television. And so, wonderful data set, you know, huge number of observations. And when I, I, I like to write things up. It's not just that I like to be in control, I think I write better. So, um, and most people are happy that you write things up as well. So, um, 
So when I was beginning to write it up, this was about three or four weeks ago, and I need the time, I need, I need a week uninterrupted when I'm doing it, um, because of the toing and froing, you realise you need to have more discussions with the co-author, so back to Korea, the email, um, and then so it, so it evolves. And then, it, but in reading around that, I discovered that there was another sort of set of issues, another literature that we hadn't originally been aware of, and was in that writing process that there was a discovery of this this new relevant literature, and so the paper's now dealing with two things and becoming more exciting. I hope. Because it's sort of, it's, it's engaging with two different existing bodies of research, which one of which was discovered partly in the writing process. So, so there's a sort of an integration of the reading and the writing in the discovery process for you, do you think? Very much yeah. so. Yeah. So in terms of this paper, did you start, you'd, you'd started doing some writing before you arrived at the final conclusions for this paper? Or did you, did you sort of know what you wanted to write when you started? Uh, with this one, yes. You did know? I did know. You, know, you knew yeah. where you were going? We knew. Yeah. And what sort of paper, what sort of feedback did the paper elicit? Maybe you could talk a bit about your process towards publication for papers which you've also spoken about a bit with me. Was that in place with this paper? So that it went to a seminar first and then and then it went, then it was revised and then went out for review. Oh yes, yes, always um, in economics you need to go through the process of giving seminars and getting feedback. And those of you who know economists, and I'm sure a lot of you do, sometimes they're a tiny bit aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you've got to survive that process. And the most aggressive ones I've found have been in the the US, this is some years ago actually. Um, but anyway, that's good for you. You survive that process, they tell you what's wrong, and you <coughs> either can reply pointing out where they've got it wrong, or you go away and you rethink, and then you improve the paper. So that's a really valuable process for scholarship, I think. And then the, the peer review process for this paper, did you, what sort of feedback did you get in peer review and was it integrated? Could you talk a bit about that as well? The peer review process, we tried um, American Journal first. In economics, there's a lot of controversy at the moment, or discussion, should I say, because there's the so-called big five publishers. Um, not the big six or seven, you know, five is just some random number that people have come up with, the big five. And these are the ones that are used for tenure. These are the ones that, um, and increasingly here, <coughs> these really matter. So your career would be made if you got a publication in the Big Five. I was very fortunate that out of my PhD thesis, I got a publication in the Big Five. Um, but so we tried the Big Five with this. Um, we tried two of the Big Five. And then, um, both American-based, and we got rejected. And the single-sex issue and the selection issue, these are the problems with it. So then we just did what people always do and worked on the journals until you get accepted or boredom hits down and hits you and you make a big jump down the journal ladder. 
So, um, and we had really good supportive um, uh, comments from the Economic Journal, which is a good journal. Yes. So was this, for you, was this an exciting paper to write given the findings of the paper and given your initial um, irritation about, you know, ideas about gender differences in risk-taking behaviour? Was this, was this a paper that sort of elicited <coughs> an, an effective response in you as you were writing it? Yes, it very much did so. And I have to say it's one of my favourite papers, although when I... When I, of mine. When I read it again, I just flicked through it yesterday, and I thought, oh my God, that's badly written. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I've repeated myself, I could have cut that up. Because as, as, as you were saying this morning, I, it's really nice writing parsimoniously. One of my, something that I really enjoyed was when a PhD student and I wrote a 10,000 word paper. Um, and then we ultimately cut it down to 2,000 words. And I, I really love doing that because you're pulling out the essence of the paper. You, know, you don't want to carry on for too long because you'll end up just with five words. <laughs> so I think we need to talk now about your fiction. This paper is interested in risk attitudes and competitive behaviour of men and women. Your fiction, especially your latest novel, Perfect Marriage, is also engaged with questions about gender in a contemporary Western country, in the UK. And the main character in A Perfect Marriage is an accomplished, intelligent, middle-class, domestic violence survivor. I'm just wondering if you could talk about your interest in, in exploring social issues in your fiction. It's a big question. It's a big question, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, my interest, uh, it, it sort of just bubbles up from inside. Yeah. The, the, I mean, my background is one from, um, well, I had a, I went to a religious school, single sex, and one side of my family, they're either atheists or they go out and work in the third world being missionaries. So there's that sort of, that sort of, not quite evangelical, but that sort of, responsibility, that you have a responsibility for social issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what bubbles up in the, yeah. in the fiction writing. And is there, in terms of the way you approach these questions in fiction, can you talk a bit about, this might be, I don't know if you can talk about this, but can you talk a bit about how um, approaching them through a fictional lens is, is different for you from obviously approaching it from the point of view of an economist? It's, it's very liberating. You're not confined by having to f find data. You've got, <laughs> you know, you've got a case study of one, like that, that woman in yes. A Perfect Marriage. That was first person. A mix of past tense and present tense. And that meant, you know, I could see it all through her eyes. I didn't have to worry about other stuff. I didn't have to worry about seminars. I didn't have to worry. Well, I had to worry a bit about potential readers, obviously. And, and the talks you'd have to do after the novel yeah, was published. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Once the novel's published. Once the novel's yes. published. <laughs> yes. So it's a liberation. It's a liberation. And also, you're not, 
you're not dealing with, with data, I suppose. You know, you're dealing with the, the individual rather than a, a data set. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, being a social scientist, I do feel I have to read up about stuff. So I felt I had to read up about domestic violence. Yeah. I read up a bit about... Um, uh, about genetics because the main character is a geneticist and she falls in love with a geneticist. So um, I had to do a bit of reading about that. The geneticist is not the domestic, the, not the biological no, no, partner, sorry. just, no, no, just no. so that you know. Yeah. No, the, no, that's right. The, uh, he's, he's innocent. He's innocent. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so when you compare, you've talked about this paper in terms of having quite a clear idea um, of where you're going when you're writing it. When you write fiction, is that, is that different? Is it a more exploratory process for you in terms of where you think you're going? How much planning are you doing for fiction? Um, I'm, I'm afraid because of my mind I have to do a bit of planning. I don't think that's a problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, economists are very logical. And when I did the first novel, I did that from six different viewpoints, um, three men, three women, um, different ages, many different ages. And um, I had a roadmap for that. So basically, I got a, a trusty table and I had each of the six characters as six columns, and then each row became a chapter. And that allowed me to keep track of the threads that were weaving through this. And I had, I had to do that because in order to justify having six perspectives, you have to be able to say to yourself, can I knock out any of those viewpoints? Should it only be four? viewpoints or three and so everyone has to be every viewpoint has to be essential to the story so I did have a clear idea then of how to structure it but then in writing each chapter it was completely um, anything could go has your practice changed since that first novel in terms of planning so is the last the more recent one did you make more discoveries, I suppose, in terms of structure in the last novel than you did in the very first novel that you wrote? Um, the discoveries were more, um, yes, more personal discoveries, yes. In the sense that I wrote that one, I decided to write that one first person, and I wrote the whole thing chronologically. And then, at the end of the day, decided to, with some flashbacks, decided to have the front story, have a front story and a back story, and the front story would go move forward in time, and the back story would move backwards in time. Um, and I wanted them to be alternating, so that each back, each past bit would mesh in with each present bit. So you'd sort of build up a picture of the past and the future. And I found that very challenging um, to do because, you know. I thought I'd had it nailed a couple of times and read, read through it and discovered that things didn't connect. But anyway, it was a good challenge. I, I loved doing that. So just, just to maybe come back to that idea of reading through your own work, how important is that in your practice in both fiction and economics, that idea of you know, going back and rereading stuff that you've written, is that an important component of, what you're, of yeah. how you think about? Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. 
It sounds really obvious, but I think you know, I think a lot of people would agree that that, that printing something out and reading it is a really important yes. part of. And, and with fiction, if possible, it's good to leave it for a while and come back and look at it afresh, particularly if you don't have anybody that you trust um, to to read it yeah. for you and give you advice. And I, I found that personally very hard to do, to be able to find readers who can read the fiction and give advice that's not going to make me feel I can't do it or impose their view too much. So the review process is very different for fiction as against writing economics where you send it off and it goes for peer review. With writing fiction, it's a um, there's there's no sort of established process of peer review, and it's a more personal relationship perhaps that you have with the work. Which yes, yeah, and you're more exposed as well. In terms, yeah. Whereas in academic writing, I don't feel exposed at all. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a bit also about the kinds of reading you do outside of the reading you do for work and how much of this reading influences your fiction writing and how it relates to the, the work you're doing in economics. How it relates to the work I'm doing in economics? In both, but you can talk about economics first if you like. Do, do you want me to talk about what economics papers I'm reading now? I think I was, I was thinking about, well actually what I'm more interested in is whether work that you read outside the area of economics affects how you write economics papers? No. Okay. No, yeah. no it doesn't. Um, no, it, it really sure. doesn't. It you've really just got, doesn't. You've got to read in the, in the sort of the genre that you're trying to write for economics. Yes. Yes. And I don't think it would go down very well if I started mucking around with the <laughs> structure, you know. Yeah. So I just, no, I, no. And do you find the structure of economics papers constraining in any way? You know, the fact that you've got to follow this particular, it's a structure that's laid down by economics journals. Do you, do you find that constraining or do you find that, is it a form that's sort of liberating in its constraints, if you know what I mean? Yes, and no, I think it is a form that's liberating in its constraints. That you have a particular structure, you follow it. It's a way of communicating ideas and information. Um, and it's a useful way. I'm not a, in my early days I did do some theoretical work um, and I don't, my mathematics is not advanced enough to do that, but in economics, those of, you probably know that economics consists of the, like physics, of the theoretical economists who work in mathematics and the applied economists who use data and the experimental economics, are, some of them overlap the two, but mostly they're in the applied. Um, and so the styles of, different, of writing are somewhat different across the two. And in relation to um, your, your fiction, and again in relation to your economics, if you can sort of answer both parts of this question, you have talked a little bit about your background um, and your kind of desire to make, or, or your, the influence to sort of make a social difference in your, in your work. But I'm also wondering whether being an Australian author has inflected the kinds of questions you've taken on in your fiction or the kinds of settings. Um, and also the same goes for your economics, whether, whether you're, the fact that you are or you were born in Australia, even though you spent a lot of time overseas, whether that's made a difference to how you've approached um, 
your economics writing. So talk about the fiction first, and I can remind you of um, the economics. Right, mission. okay. So the, um, the fiction, the first three novels, could only have been written in Australia. They're set in the south coast of New South Wales, and I, I'm quite a visual person, and I wanted to have the landscape form very much a part of it. And events happen because of the landscape, um, particularly in the first novel. Um, and also I wanted to bring in, I did quite a bit of research for the first novel, um, including a book written by an historian at the ANU who had bought a piece of land down near Bega on the, I think it's called the Bega River. And his book is called Looking for Blackfellas Point. And that was a wonderful mm. book. I found that also so useful for my story because my husband and I went down to Beeger and we, we saw the um, Aboriginal community and we, we went to the museums and we saw that at Bermagiri there was um, new, a new museum and just north of Bermagiri is a Wallaga Lake Reserve, an indigenous community. And that museum at Bermagiri had not a single mention of Aborigines or the indigenous presence. And there are middens on the coast mm. there. It was just mind-blowing. So the that's books by Mark McKenna. I was just trying yeah, to remember. Mark McKenna. Mark McKenna. Yeah, yeah. yeah very, good, very good book. Mm. Um, and a, Anyway, I won't go into that because uh, but I could talk a lot about Mark McKenna's book. <laughs> so could you talk a bit about, you know, your, your um, as an Australian economist, whether that sort of inflected your, your work in economics? No, 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 no. Well, apart from one paper that we did on um, indigenous health, but apart from that, it's been much more important for thinking about the sort of the sense of place has been much more important for your fiction, obviously, than for your yes. for your economics. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, and so I think and I you asked what I was reading. I did ask what yes. you were reading in for your fiction more for yeah. your. Well, I want to tell you. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading 1989 by um, Victor Sebastian. 1989 is about the collapse of the events leading up to the collapse of the Berlin Wall. It's a great read. He really writes so well. And it's about four principal countries, um, East Germany, um, Hungary, I won't go into too many details, but that's what I'm reading at the moment. Um, it's the second time I'm reading. And the other one is by Marcus Zusak, which is his new book um, called Bridge of Clay. And it took him 20 years to write this book, I think 20 years, or it might have been 15, a very long time. And of course, he was following on from The Music Thief, which, what a hard act to follow. Um, anyway, that's what I'm reading. So it was, I think I'm probably not allowed to ask you too much about your next book. Um, am I allowed to? No, I'm not. So in terms of, in terms of your, the area of economics you're working in now, can you talk a bit about where you see your economics research going at this point? And then I might ask, start thinking of questions that you also want to ask Alison, because I might ask people after you've answered that question, what other, what other things you could, you know, what else you'd like to ask Alison? Um, well, I have recently become emeritus professor, and one of the joys of doing that is that I now feel I can let stuff happen. So I don't, 
intend to write any more grant applications. <laughs> um, so I have to say I found, I found this a real liberation. What I do quite like writing though is ethics applications. Um, I think I'm one of the peculiar <laughs> few who actually <laughs> likes doing that and I like it because it makes you think about the issues. Um, and if you're doing experiments on human beings you have to you know, justify everything. Um, and I did get called in front of the um, one of the DVCs about the last one, but I quite enjoy that challenge. So uh, I envisage some more experiments. Ethics, ethics applications yes, in your future. In my yeah. future, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Alison. So coming out of those, the questions I've asked Alison, is there, is there, are there things that you would like to ask her in relation to her writing practices in economics or her contribution 